0: welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC.
1: Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people.
0: I'm Sefi Kogan.
1: And I'm Manya Broshier-Pashman.
0: Josh Kraft is a community leader, a seasoned nonprofit executive, and through his family, a six-time Super Bowl champion. Josh recently took the helm of his family's philanthropic efforts and joined us to discuss an important new initiative he's overseeing called Together Beat Hate. Josh, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Sefi. Great to be here.
0: So you have a pretty prominent family business. For our listeners who don't know, your dad is Robert Kraft. He's the owner of the New England Patriots. If I'm not mistaken, your brothers have all worked in and around the team. But you decided to pursue a nonprofit career, and you worked for decades at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. What motivated you to pursue that career path?
2: I taught for a year, my first year out of college. It was an intern teacher role. And I wanted to keep working with kids. it was a position at the Boys and Girls Club in South Boston, um, working in the public housing developments with kids who weren't going to school, who weren't doing well. And I started working in there. And um, I like to tell people that it was the greatest educational experience in my life because for the first time in my life, I saw things firsthand that I only read about, under education, teen pregnancy, substance abuse, domestic violence. But at the same time, I saw the power of community at the Boys and Girls Club and how it can support kids from every denomination, every race, ethnicity, what have you, and supported them all by providing them all equal access to opportunity and
0: hope. And you actually worked your way up at the Boys and Girls Clubs and you were the president and CEO of Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston when you decided to leave. What's one kind of proudest accomplishment from your time there?
2: I spent 15 years in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which was the first city to go into receivership since the Great Depression. And as you might probably know, Sefi, it used to be a thriving Jewish community. You know, it really went through some really hard times. And we got a club built there. We started a program in the basement of public housing during the Clinton administration during his weed and seed program. We started there. It took nine years, but uh I was 93. And then in February of 02, we opened a $11.5 dollar Boys and Girls Club that was state of the art at the time and still is probably. Um, we're just so proud. It was a true example of community because it was the kids and the families and the community businesses. Everybody came together to support that project. And it took nine years of building it up, but it really was all about grassroots support and believing in something. And a sense of community, which was great.
0: incredible. Now, this year, you've made the decision to pivot professionally and become president of the Kraft family philanthropies. What are a few of the issues? I know that there's actually a lot of stuff that your family works on philanthropically, but what are some of the issues that the philanthropic group is focused on?
2: To go big picture, Sefi, to start from 50,000 feet up, I think what's important to my dad, my brothers, and I is for us to support those marginalized and forgotten you know, whether it's homeless people, people with substance abuse, people coming out of prison, you know, just people that are sort of left behind and marginalized. Not all, but obviously that's a huge thrust of our philanthropy and kind of plays into a lot of our initiatives. And more specifically, you know, we have the Craft Center for Community Health through a Mass General Hospital, and there's a whole cancer navigation program for people and from disadvantaged backgrounds but we also have this unique program mobile opiate units that go out uh, with outreach workers and treat people living in the streets with major substance abuse issues Uh, getting them on suboxone if possible teach them how to use narcan for overdoses food giving them medical checkups and so on and really is a really unique impactful thing then of course there's all the great work with the team, the Patriots and the New England Revolution. It really, you know, when these guys get out there, people respond. So anything you can get behind with them is so special and important. Our newest initiative is the Foundation of Combat Antisemitism, which my dad created with a philanthropic investment of $20 million to combat antisemitism and other forms of prejudice, racism and hate that unfortunately are way too prevalent. Considering what a modernized society we are, it's really somewhat, not somewhat, it's freaking disgraceful that this is still something we're dealing with.
0: So before we we dive more into that, I just want to ask you about one other element that I think has kind of captured people's imagination through the years. I actually, I don't know if this is run through the philanthropy or not, but I know that your dad has taken several trips of NFL players to Israel to kind of help expose them to Israel, maybe brush away some of the misconceptions around Israel. Have you been involved in that at all? Is there, you know, can you share with us some of the impact about that?
2: Yeah, uh, players, Hall of Famers, Patriots players, The impact is, oh, my God, i take me to the Jordan River so I can get, you know, baptized again, going to see where the Sermon on the Mount was done, understanding the real gifts that Israel brings to the world in terms of, you know, a lot of the things we believe in in this country that, of course, are a little bit shaky right now, but openness, uh, equality between men and women, equality for LGBTQ plus rights, and just freedom of you know true true democracy, and I think exposing these guys to that was really important.
0: Yeah, as you might expect, I've I've never brought any NFL players to Israel, but each year with AJC, I bring a group of university presidents to Israel, and uh, getting to kind of see that that realization dawning on them that you know. Oh, this is like any amazing city in in the United States. This is an incredible, you know, historic place to be in in the world. It's a pretty cool thing to kind of see that dawning on people. So you you brought up when we were talking just a moment ago about the different projects that the family philanthropic group works on. You brought up this new project, the Foundation to Combat Antisemitism, that your dad set up with an initial investment of twenty million dollars. There are a lot of things that you guys are passionate about, which you know we talked about working with underserved communities, fighting cancer, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of really pressing issues facing our country, some of which you also just named, and facing the Jewish people, of course. But you guys decided to focus on anti-Semitism. So, look, no one needs to convince me that it's important to fight anti-Semitism. But how did you decide that that was kind of this important new project that needed, you know, work to address?
2: I think over the last two, three years or three, four years, the number one rising hate crime, at least religious hate crime, I think most Americans say, oh, it's got to be you know, anti-Islam, but it's not. It's anti-Semitism is the number one growing hate crime against a religious group. Not growing, the number one every year and growing. And, you know, by a wide margin. And as I don't have to tell you, or I'm sure the folks listening on this podcast is the negatively unique thing about anti-Semitism is, you know, those on the far right aren't big fans, unfortunately, and those on the far left aren't either which is crazy. This really was an important issue for my dad and my brothers and I it mm-hmm. really it was my dad's initiative, his thoughts and his vision on,
0: And those numbers that you cite, I think, are FBI-recorded hate crime statistics. Um, Just uh, to kind of tease for our listeners, in another uh, couple of weeks, we at AJC will be releasing new statistical findings about anti-Semitism, which I think will be eye-opening for people. So we'll have more about that in a future episode. The foundation spent about a year in more of like a listening mode and recently launched the first outward-facing program called Together Beat Hate. Just kind of broadly, what is the goal of Together? beat hate. I notice in the title, together beat hate, not together beat anti-Semitism. TBH is maybe a catchier set of initials, but clearly there's a reason why you're talking about hate and not talking about anti-Semitism.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, what TBH is, it's the first front facing initiative of the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism. We're hoping it's a, not hoping, it will be, it is slowly, but surely it's a movement It's going to encourage young people to join in the fight against all forms of hatred. You know, through our shared humanity, feeling a sense of common and collective responsibility to society as a whole. I mean, anti-Semitism is not just a Jewish problem. Racism isn't just an African-American problem. Homophobia is not just an LGBTQ plus problem. It's all of our problems. It's everybody's responsible for it. Everybody's got to tighten up and make the difference with it. And that's what TBH, you know, we start with anti-Semitism, but it moves into all forms of hatred. Mm-hmm. And it does it through, you know, meeting young people where they are, social media platforms, through our TBH command center, which tracks 300 million websites throughout the world around anti-Semitism and other forms of hate. And finally, empowering individuals with, uh, in community organizations to on-the-ground initiatives to build bridges and so on.
0: Let us know how people can get involved in, in this important initiative. Together Beat
2: Hate on Facebook, all one word. TogetherBeatHate.org is our website. TogetherBeatHate, all one word on Instagram. And then Twitter, TogetherBeat with an E-H-8. So TogetherBeat, E-H-8.
0: A very worthy cause for people to go and follow on their social media. Josh, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you, Sefi and
2: everyone at the American Jewish Committee. And look forward to staying in touch.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Dr. Laura Shaw Frank, the director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department. Laura, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about?
3: Thanks, Effie. It's great to be back on People of the Pod. This Shabbat, I'm planning to talk to my family about rain. This weekend, we're celebrating the Jewish holidays of Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, the culmination of the Sukkot holiday. And one of my favorite traditions of the Jewish year takes place on Shemini Atzeret, which is reciting the prayer for rain. This time of year begins the rainy season in Israel. And as you probably know, it literally almost never rains in Israel between Passover and Sukkot. And if the rains don't begin around now, it can actually be quite a disaster for the fall agricultural season. So the first rain of Israel's rainy season is so important that it has a name. It's called the Yoreh. That name actually comes from the Bible and the rabbis discuss it in the Talmud too. But it's also a word that every Israeli, no matter how religious or how secular knows. And there's another important phrase Israelis use to talk about rain at this time of year, too. When it rains after the prayer for rain is recited on Shemini Atzeret, the rain is called Gishmei Bracha, rains of blessing. I remember when my husband and I lived in Israel in the early 2000s, I was continually amazed to hear Israelis of all stripes talking about the Yore and about Gishmei Bracha every fall, usually with big happy smiles on their faces. Part of it was just seeing people rejoice over rain, something that doesn't usually happen in the urban Northeast United States where I'm from. We're usually just annoyed by rain. But more importantly, it brought home to me the way Israelis naturally weave Jewish texts and traditions into their general secular culture. So when I talk about rain with my family this Shabbat, I really wanna use it as a way to talk about Israeli society. One of the things I spend a lot of time working on at AJC is the Israel-Diaspora relationship, which is so critical to the Jewish future. And one important way to strengthen that relationship is by helping each community understand more about what makes the other one tick, what their culture's like. Israel has such a powerful culture around rain, and it encompasses both the particular climate of Israel and also the way Israeli secular discourse can have such deep roots in Jewish texts and traditions. I love that so much. So that's why I'm going to talk about rain at our Shabbat table this week. Mania, what are you going to be talking about at your Shabbat table?
1: Laura, thank you so much for that interesting perspective on rain. At our Shabbat table, we will be discussing nonpartisanship, perhaps a strange topic to bring up in the weeks before an election and just days after a heated vice presidential debate. But let's face it, it's a strange topic anytime you bring it up these days. For those who might have forgotten, let me define nonpartisanship. It means not biased toward any particular political party. Now, some of my journalism colleagues over the years took the nonpartisan nature of journalism so far that they declined to vote, saying their duty to democracy was to report the facts. I never took it that far. I've always believed voting is a fundamental right that all Americans, regardless of their role, their public service, or even their criminal record, should exercise. That said, Maintaining nonpartisanship professionally as a journalist is key to building relationships, understanding and explaining others' perspectives, and garnering the public's trust. Since coming to AJC last year, I've learned that what's true for journalism is even more true for advocacy. Earlier this week, our CEO, David Harris, was honored for his three decades at the helm of AJC. Now, you can imagine the stories people shared, the lives he touched, the lessons he learned were many— But one story stood out in my mind as particularly instructive. When Egyptian and Syrian forces attacked Israel on the sacred day of atonement, Yom Kippur, in 1973. The American president at the time? Richard Nixon. America was still reeling from Vietnam. The Watergate investigation was well underway. Nixon was, well, not exactly beloved. But when he made the decision to airlift tons of tanks, artillery, and ammunition to Israel to help them triumph over their attackers, David realized it did not matter what anyone thought of the president. If you're going to advocate for a particular cause, you have to maintain access to people in power. You have to make challenging choices, and you have to pick your battles wisely, he said. It's hard to see beyond partisanship these days. Really hard. Everything, and I do mean everything, seems to be politicized. But there is a benefit to not wearing your personal preferences on your sleeve, not advertising them on social media. Most importantly, not letting them get in the way of marshaling support for the causes you truly believe in and are devoted to. I congratulate David on 30 years at the helm of AJC, and I'm grateful to be here at a moment when the agency is pausing to reflect on its own history. It's pausing to reflect on the world history of the last three decades through his eyes because there's much to be learned. And boy, do we need that guidance to get through what's to come. (laughs) Sefi, what are you going to be talking about?
0: I also congratulate David. It was a beautiful, beautiful event this week. But we're going to be focusing on some Hebrew vocab at my Shabbat table. Charedi means one who trembles. It's the phrase ultra-Orthodox Jews prefer to use for themselves because they tremble in fear of God. That fear of God is called, in Hebrew, yirat shamaim, literally fear of heaven. It is considered good in Judaism to live your life with yirat shamaim because it keeps you humble and concerned about matters of the soul. Speaking of souls, pikuach nefesh literally means saving a soul. It's the act of saving a life. Jewish tradition teaches that the requirement to save human life overrides virtually every other commandment. In order to save lives, even the most traditionally religious Jews can do some very un-Jewish things, like violate the laws of Shabbat and skip synagogue services. Bushah means an embarrassment or a shameful act. So does cherpa, so does chlima. So does Shonda, but that one is Yiddish, not Hebrew. And all of these words come in handy when talking about what has been going on in Brooklyn this week. After Borough Park was identified as a rising COVID hotspot, the New York authorities moved to close schools and strictly limit the capacity of all indoor venues, including houses of worship. This is smart. This is a good thing. Because if it helps nip a new COVID surge in the bud, then it would save lives. Furthermore, because of pikuach nefesh, Jewish law holds that it is absolutely fine to pray in your home without a minion, a prayer quorum, in order to save a life. In fact, if attending a synagogue is going to put lives in danger, which it absolutely would in a pandemic, then praying in a synagogue is not only not a mitzvah, a commandment, it's an avera, a sin. Misled by some rabble-rousing leaders, many in the Haredi community have been doing the wrong thing. They have rioted, held unmasked protests featuring mask burnings, and even assaulted some members of the community who were supporting this shutdown and encouraging mask wearing. It was a bushah, a cherpa, a chlimah, and a shanda, When on Wednesday night, a mob of hundreds attacked Haredi journalist Jacob Kornblu, a friend of our podcast and a rising star in the world of Jewish journalism. He was assaulted, hit in the head, kicked at, called a Nazi, and pinned against a wall by the mob. He had to be rescued and escorted to safety by the NYPD. My modern Orthodox community is no less authentically Jewish than the Borough Park community, but my synagogue spent months locked down and continues to have major, major prayer modifications in place to ensure public health. I led my community in prayer on Yom Kippur through a mask, in a socially distanced room, in a majorly abridged service, with minimal singing, all to protect ourselves and, by extension, our fellow New Yorkers. Speaking of Yom Kippur... Jewish tradition teaches that in the beginning of each year, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, each person passes before God's throne to be judged. On Rosh Hashanah, the saying goes, our verdict is written, and on Yom Kippur, it is sealed. Who shall live and who shall die? There's a much less well-known date called Hoshana Rabbah, when the period of judgment is really, really final. That date is tomorrow. So I ask my co-religionists in Brooklyn, where is your Yirat Shemaim, your fear of heaven? We are all being judged right now. And you choose right now to riot and attack your fellow Jews and to flout public health as the pandemic surges back in this country? The actions in Brooklyn call to mind one last vocab term, Chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's holy name. What else should we call it? When the people who are seen as emblematic of Orthodox Torah committed Jews make a fuss over following the same rules as everyone else, when they resort to bullying and violence, when they invite anti-Semitism through their actions, those are the only words I can think of. Chilul Hashem. I hope my fellow Jews in Borough Park will be thinking about their actions this Shabbat. I know that I will be. Shabbat Shalom. Amen.
1: Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
0: You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at People at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us.
1: Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.